Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am thrilled to present the second installment in my Week of Wine and Roses with the show's librettist, Pulitzer Prize finalist Craig Lucas. A note that this interview was recorded before Days of Wine and Roses was announced, but you can still hear some references to the show within the conversation. Craig Lucas, whose numerous credits include the plays Prelude to a Kiss, Prayer for My Enemy, Reckless, I Was Most Alive With You, and The Dying Gall, has also written the books to the musicals The Light in the Piazza, Amelie, An American in Paris, and Paradise Square. He's also penned the screenplays Longtime Companion, Birds of America, and The Secret Lives of Dentists. In his previous career as an actor, he appeared on Broadway in the musicals On the 20th Century, Rex, Shenandoah, and Sweeney Todd. And now, without further ado, here's Craig Lucas. All right. Well, so I'd love to begin by asking, how did you first become interested in theater? Uh, maybe I'm trying to remember which came first. I might... Parents took me to see a performance of the faculty at my grade school doing a Rogers and Hart musical, Babes in Arms. And I was so flabbergasted that they were all up there on stage in these bright costumes I was a little mystified by the makeup, which didn't look real. It looked very false. And I thought, well, what in the world is going on here? Why are they acting so um, animated and <laughs> and expressively? And I think I was very taken with that. And then I think it might've been 1956 seven or six, let me look online, um, when they first broadcast a kinescope on television of the Jerome Robbins production of Peter Pan with Mary Martin. Uh, I was transported by the, the storytelling, the fact that it had songs in it and, and everyone was playing a character and it wasn't real, but they were real people playing the characters. I don't know, the whole thing just blew my mind. Um, and then my parents gave me for my birthday, maybe when I was, I guess, six, the show album of Peter Pan, which of course today would be, you know, they'd burn the theater down because of that terrible representation of indigenous people you know ugawug 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 wow you know whatever that nonsense was um but i was too young to know any of that and so i really liked it and then 
I was given marionettes and I was very taken to writing plays for the marionettes and my mother, clever creature that she was, uh, arranged for me to give a performance at a local hospital for children who were there being treated for some grave illness. And I, I went and did it. And my mother, again, arranged for local publicity. It was in the Philadelphia Bulletin that I was a entertainer. And I suddenly started getting regular gigs entertaining at children's birthday parties and at hospitals and events like that. Um, so by the time I was nine, I was making a lot of money. <laughs> and my father took me to a, a specialty store in Philadelphia that sold magic tricks. And I started learning to do magic as well as marionettes. And uh, by the time I went to college, I had a pile of money. And I didn't even really like performing very much. It made me nervous and self-conscious, but I liked writing the plays for the marionettes. I'm very, very slow to pick up on things and I'm like a late bloomer in all ways. I was like the last person to get certain social regulations that most people seem to know very early. In fact, I was just taught through a wonderful memoir by Daryl Pinckney. Do you know that writer? I don't, I don't. Um, so I only just learned through uh, Daryl Pinckney's book that you're not supposed to talk about someone that you know very well to someone that you know less well. That oh. that's the rule that you must, if you don't know someone well, you mustn't entrust them with information that they could use to harm you. I've I didn't know that rule. And so I've gone around blundering like a fool my entire life, blabbing things that were not appropriate for me <laughs> for me to share uh i didn't know the rule and so how did you pick where to go to college and where to apply and all that well i really wanted to go to juilliard or to carnegie mellon but i didn't get into either university um and it was it was very important to my mother that i become a performer and i was keen on pleasing her I mean I'm sure she would have rather I became a lawyer but if I wasn't going to be a lawyer then I think uh, she wanted me to somehow be on stage which was really something that she could have done and, and should have done and she had an opportunity to do and her mother wouldn't let her when she was a child the, the burlesque star um Sophie Tucker uh, offered to take my mother on the road with her because she thought my mother was so charming on stage. She'd been invited up on stage to sing and dance with Sophie Tucker at some point and my grandmother wouldn't let her. So my mom was a little bit like Mama Rose in that she really had this aspiration. And because I was a naturally vocal and expressive young person, she was always applauding 
so I thought, oh, well, I'll go to acting school. And I had this very, very misbegotten idea that being an actor would be easier than <laughs> doing other things. It's turned out not to be the case. And I actually wasn't a very natural performer. I was too self-conscious really to be on stage. And it took me quite a few years to recognize that my more natural talents were on the other side of the, the fourth wall you know, on or the camera that I belonged on this side, the same side as the audience. Though I, you know, by being a writer or a director, I could sort of be both. I could be on stage, but also not on stage. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So I got into Boston University, which was my third choice. Uh, I was just so clueless about how things worked and clueless about myself. And I'd say that I still am in many regards, pretty clueless about, I'm good at reading emotional cues, like when someone's upset or, you know, human behavior I can read, but the rules of the road are not always clear to me. Anyway, I got into BU and I started school and I heard like the first night in the dorm that the poet Anne Sexton was teaching at Boston University and, for, and I wrote a, a poem for the first time in my life and I sent it and submitted and she accepted me into her class. And so I, I I, for the four years that I was at BU, I had a double major. I was studying acting and theater, and then I was studying as a, I was studying creative writing. And though I often cut classes in both endeavors, um, I really was not a particularly disciplined person yet. It was I was well into my twenties when it finally was explained to me that if I wanted to have a career as a writer, I was going to have to actually write something. Which I didn't really, also didn't quite understand. I just thought, oh, my mother thinks I'm brilliant and 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 so I must be brilliant and things will just come to me and I won't have to do anything. And I was raised in a community outside of Philadelphia uh, where the children of the wealthier people there, I, my family was working class, so I, we weren't wealthy in any way, but they were they were parvenus, my family. And they wanted to be seen as being <laughs> wealthy and successful in ways that they really weren't. And, and my family was also masquerading as things they weren't. I thought my father was Pennsylvania Dutch and I only learned after he died that he was Native American. Oh. And my mother who presented as an Episcopalian I found out in well into childhood that she actually was a, a Jew, a European Jew. So everything was a performance in the family. We were performing being things that we weren't. Uh, it's interesting, right? It's very strange. Yeah, it um, and so I obviously I went into performing. Uh, and I've noticed as I get older, how often people are finishing the unfinished projects of their parents. unbeknownst to them, they carry out what their parents were not able to complete 
in their journey. And this business of finishing our parents' uh, agenda doesn't really even belong to us. It's, it's kind of, it's a legacy, but it's not really ours. And I find that I'm still very much um, involved in the process of giving back the things that I don't need to do uh, th that my parents aren't alive any longer. I don't I don't need to be finishing their sentences for them. <laughs> and so with your training at college being mostly in acting and in creative writing, as you were saying, did you ever train formally in singing or did that just come more naturally to you or? No, I was told I couldn't sing. In fact, uh, the speech department at BU, which had some very famous practitioners, they told me that my voice was not strong enough to be a singer. But I was very luckily given piano lessons as a kid, and I was pretty dutiful at, at practicing. And that enabled me to purchase the vocal selections from musicals and learn the songs and I would sing along. And so somewhere in my late teens, I realized I had this very big, bright, untrained voice. And I didn't have any technique at all, but I could make a very bright projected sound. So when I came to New York after I graduated from school, I was very fortunate again. I was invited to join Equity by one of the faculty who gave me my first job right out of school doing a musical out of town. And so then I had an Equity card and I started going to auditions and singing with no training. <laughs> but I could make this big, bright sound up to a maybe an F or a G, even G sharp. And so I started getting cast first in children's theater. And then I got cast in a musical that was trying out out of town in, in Connecticut and it came to Broadway and suddenly I had a career singing. And at that point I realized I had better study. So I was, uh, uh, I went to a wonderful teacher named Keith David, who taught many other singers of my generation. And he helped give me some technique. But again, Charles, I wasn't really a natural performer. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a storyteller, but I think it's better when other people are doing the performing, you know? Um, so that, performing career kind of petered out by the time I was 30 or 31. And I, by then had, but again, I had to be told, um, but I, I did a musical with someone that I respected and this very respected person said to me, you know, you're not untalented as a singer or a performer, but your writing is more, is more, unique and and you have more to offer as a writer and um and you might like it better because you're your own boss so no one has to tell you that, no one has to give you permission to write 
you can just do it seven days a week, anytime you want. Whereas to be an actor, you know, unless you're going to go out on the street, hat in hand, you need someone to give you permission to, to be in a play, but no one has to give you permission to write a play. And again, I was very late blooming, but I, that was like, oh, thank you. That's very helpful. And then I began to write and I had much, much more success early on. Uh, writing than I did as a performer where I think I was pretty self-conscious and pretty awkward. Right. And so when you were performing, did you find that you had a writer's sensibility in terms of you could see what should be changed or you could see what the flaws were? I don't know if I could see what should be changed or see what the flaws were, but I was interested in the writers and I tended to hang out with them. And if I felt that the writers were smart or doing uh, challenging things, then I had conversations with them. And I also was very interested in the directors of uh, the projects that I got cast in. And, and so I would hang out with them too. And I was very lucky to be uh, thrown into the world of some people who were doing very interesting work. You know, when I was at Boston University, again, I think I was just very, very fortunate because Boston was then a tryout town for Broadway plays and musicals. And so I saw a lot of work on its way to New York and I saw it change because I would go to an early preview and see the show and be fascinated and amazed. And then I would go a few nights later or a week later and it would be very different. Songs would have been jettisoned, replaced. There would be new story points. And I think I became aware that what was being presented to the audience was something that was being fashioned in, in real time. And, you know, I'd see like a, a final song in a musical that confounded me and the audience, something that just the curtain came down in the audience and, and we were like, what? That's the conclusion. And then I would come back a few days later and there would be a completely new song there and the audience would leap to its feet. And I went, oh, it's making theater is the art of revision rethinking listening to the responses you're getting and taking them on board and and learning and learning is very very enticing to me you know it's i think it's what's kept me going despite a lot of challenges in life is that i can learn new things and then incorporate them. Uh, Have you found that what audiences expect has changed from when you were first watching musicals in Boston until now? When you I'm not sure I understood what the audience was looking for back when I was young because I think I was not a member of the majority. 
So years later, you know, I would invite my parents to see a show and my father would say, oh, nobody wants to sit through that kind of thing. You know, I would take them to see like, who's a, who's a precocious child in some ways. <laughs> I would take them to see who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And my father would be like, well, that's depressing. Why did you take us to that? I like to go to the theater to have a good time, to be distracted from my life. And, and so that bifurcation, it used to be thought of as the difference between high art and low art. You know, sort of like Eugene O'Neill versus Buddy Hackett. <laughs> Uh, but I think there's always been that split between those who wanted to see something in the theater that surprised and challenged them and those who wanted to be in some way palliated or placated. And I don't think that goes away. Unfortunately, I think the, the Philistine impulse has now taken on a new disguise, which is that, oh no, theater is for therapy. It's for healing us. And so we must not be upset by what is shown. And that is now trotting itself out under the guise of progressive politics. Don't use language that we experience as violence even if it reflects the real world, don't put it on the stage. It will trigger me. And that's just my father's desire to be handled with care in a new disguise. You know, my father, God bless him, was, was a right-wing person, but now it is the left wing that is arguing for an edited rethought presentation of things that don't reflect the real world exactly, but re reflect a utopian vision of what the world might be. Uh, so I think it is unfortunate and I'm hoping that people who have more experience and knowledge and education will gently guide the people promulgating these new censorships into a braver stance in relation to art. So to be a little more specific, when I saw all of the Hal Prince, Stephen Sondheim musicals that were trying out in Boston during my education, it was clear that the audience was not unified in their acceptance of shows like Company and Follies and A Little Night Music and Pacific Overtures, that there was a, a sort of mainstream rejection of the aesthetic courage and also the content courage that those creators were enacting. They were, they were roundly criticized and dismissed by many prominent voices. But they were making art that spoke to me very directly. Whereas if I went to see something like The Music Man or 
I don't know. I, I don't want to put anyone down. But if I went to see a more old-fashioned musical, I was not very interested. It seemed like, oh, yeah, I know. Okay, great. Small time, town, Iowa. Yeah, that's that's cute. Thanks. It all seemed like a lie to me. And uh, I was more interested in art that was telling me things that I knew to be true, but that weren't spoken about so easily or so readily, you know? So I don't think there's anything wrong with art that simply gives pleasure to people, but for me to get pleasure from a work of art, I want to be shown something I don't know. So when there's another revival of some old hoary musical that doesn't really ask very much of the audience, and I don't need to name them, especially when they're done by not-for-profit theaters where people have donated their money to help preserve theater as an art form and not a commercial venture, I'm very offended. There's nothing wrong with entertainment, but are you offering something that's worth entertaining? And that's where I, I sort of draw the line, which I think makes me a bit of a dinosaur. <laughs> so in your own writing and in your own work, have you found that you've discovered sort of deeper truths about the subjects that you're writing about, if they are real life subjects like the Oromor or AIDS or all of these? What was, oh, um, well, hopefully, yes. I mean, I think if you know what it is that you want to express before you express it, that you lose something. Living from moment to moment, one is surprised by what is hidden being made manifest. You know, we have dreams. Every night we have dreams and they speak to us in ways that are confounding. When you wake up and you think, well, why was I in that desert? And why was that four-legged animal speaking to me? And what was it trying to tell me? I find that relationship between the unconscious and the conscious and what is seen to be very, very interesting. And, you know, we all have shadows. The light hits us and we don't know what the shadow behind us is doing. We don't know. Look at that hole in my sweater. That's how... Here I am talking about denigrating the commercial, but I probably should be writing more commercial things so my clothing doesn't look so shabby. Um, the shadow self, the, the parts of ourselves that we don't want to look at, I think are often the most gripping. And so if I, if I set out to write about something I generally am drawn to things that I don't know how to do. So when the AIDS epidemic arrived, or, you know, for, for 
from my enemy when I saw that my whole life as an American citizen had been shadowed by these foreign wars where very poor people in other countries were, were being terrorized by American weapons. To try to understand what that means, you know, I was raised to believe that America was on the side of democracy and, you know, the spread of a more egalitarian way of life. But really, if you look at the foreign wars since World War II, they have been imperial wars and we have mostly rained violence and death down on very, very poor disenfranchised people so that someone could profit off of what resources were available in that particular area, whether it was oil or bananas in Guatemala, whatever it was, it was really the very rich using the arms of the United States of America to enrich themselves privately. And that's a secret and a piece of information that not all Americans want to have because we have the luxury of our ignorance. Same is true about racism. If you're lucky enough, well, if you're born white in a country where to be white grants enormous privilege, it might behoove you not to know it. To just proceed as if that fact is not true. But if I stop and I ask certain people that I grew up with who were not born white, what's it like living here? What's it like going to school with me? I'm going to hear things I may not want to hear. Unpleasant things, not such attractive things. And those pieces of information are important in moving forward to a world that isn't raining violence down on people who live on the wrong side of the tracks, or on the wrong side of the Atlantic Ocean. So yes, I think I've always been surprised by what I learned when I start to research and prepare to write something. Or even if I write something seemingly impulsively, you know, if I just sit down and one of my early plays was meant to be like a comic nightmare. And I finished the play and I handed it to my respected and wonderful director colleague. And he said, well, I see that you've written about abandonment. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the story you've told in your play, your funny play is a version of what happened to you as a baby. And I said, oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> I didn't even know what I had written. And I think that's true that, that very good artists often don't know what it is that they've brought into the world or put in front of you. Everything has manifest content and then it has hidden content. You know, 
And if you look past the manifest content, you might be lucky enough to see what is hiding behind the official story. And for me, art has a magical capacity to show things that are greater and more mysterious than what everyone is agreeing to. Like, oh, look, the emperor is wearing a wonderful new outfit. But art can say, Psst, he's buck naked. He's not wearing a stitch of clothing. Did you notice that? And so when, when you are writing, as we were talking about before, about a specific issue or something like that, a real life issue, how do you decide to bring it, whether to bring it to the foreground more explicitly or keep it in the background? I know some people interpret your play Prelude to a Kiss as being sort of a response to AIDS, but not in as explicit a way as Longtime Companion or some of the other plays that you've written. And so how is that decision made? You know, I, everything is made in collaboration with others. And so Longtime Companion was very much, was written because the director, Norman Renee, who was my teacher and mentor and colleague in crime, his aesthetic was teaching me. And, and he was very interested in the fact that white people who think they're entitled, uh, if they also happen to be gay, don't like to notice that in fact they are lower class citizens than their fellow white neighbors and, you know this was 1988 when we were creating that piece and, and and norman said to me you know have you noticed that gay people they're everywhere you know they're working at the grocery store and they're driving your cab and they're everywhere but they are supposed to not like advertise who they are because they have some subterranean or maybe even more awareness that they're vulnerable, that they don't have the same rights as others. And AIDS exposed that nerve to them in a, in a shocking way. Uh, and it is, insofar as I can see, historically, it was the engine behind finally making an entire country and world aware that gay people didn't have the same rights as heterosexual people. And the, the, the dangerous thing about being a homosexual is that you can hide it to a certain degree. It can be hidden. And that is how we were kept from taking our equal rights. But 
uh, HIV put an end to that because it forced people out of the closet because they were sick and they needed help and they were dying. And then suddenly the people who never wanted to hear the word homosexual were going to have to read it every day in the paper and see it every night on the news. And they were really angry. So they were like, just die already. We don't want to know about it. And he said, I think that's our call to action. It's our call to speak up for our gay uh, fellow citizens. And I use the word gay, I could, I, let's say queer, which is maybe a better moniker. Uh, and so that's why that movie is told the way it is, it was, it was that my colleague wanted to do that. That was what interested him. And he was very interested in banal behavior. What happens when you pick up a pad and you're tearing off a piece of paper, to him, how you do that is the telling feature. So he liked situations that weren't necessarily freighted with overt content. I demand to be in the will, or how dare you, you know, that kind of confrontation, which is what melodrama does. He was besotted with Chekhov, where you hand someone a cup of tea and how long you hold on to it and how you let them have it shows who you are. Do you shove it at them and spill it on them? Or do you take the care to see that they have it securely and make sure that they're, they're safe and protected? Um, and that's what interested him. So his films and plays were very much about the behavior, the minute behavior in moments that might pass unnoticed. So it was written to show the, the character of these individuals, Sean, David, uh, you know, Willie, when they were doing stupid little things, ordering a drink or going for a walk or going to work or picking up their dry cleaning. And that's why the piece is, is the way it is. Whereas Prelude to a Kiss was something I wrote for me. And I had this notion that maybe in a marriage you're with someone and you you don't really know who they are. And I thought, well, if it, if, if the person that you love was actually replaced by another person, would you know? And that was the whole premise of the play, was to create a kind of magical, nightmarish situation where you go on your honeymoon with someone that you, you're so besotted with, but actually unbeknownst to you, it's not that person at all, it's another person. Would you figure it out? And what would you do to get back the person you wanted? And it turned out that, that that was what I thought was the manifest content of the story. But it turned out that the hidden content was really about mortality, getting old and sick and infirm and dying. And in the case of that story, 
prematurely, which was what exactly was happening to me. All of my friends, everyone around me was suddenly getting sick and they were suddenly infirm and they suddenly needed the kind of care that normally would be appropriate to people in their 80s and 90s. So I think, you know, drama critics were probably correct in noting that the play could be interpreted as uh, a metaphor about the AIDS epidemic, but it also could be interpreted as a, simply a metaphor for how shocking it is that we grow old. And, you know, W.B. Yeats said the most surprising thing in anyone's life is their old age. We kind of live in denial of the fact that we're going to get old and that we're going to die until we can't deny it any longer. And so the play is on, on one level is about that too. And so to, um, to ask a slightly less sort of philosophical question or to go to a different topic, how involved do you like to be in the casting of your plays? And do you often have specific actors in mind as you write or? I have written things for specific actors and very often it winds up that the director doesn't want to use them. And it's very, I, I get myself into trouble because I tell someone I've written this play for you. And then, and this has happened more than once. And then the director who's hired says that I don't see that person in that role. And, and then feelings are very hurt. So it's tricky. I do like to work with the same actors over and over again. And sometimes I've written something for someone and they didn't want to do it. That happens too. Uh, and you, you simply have to deal with whatever is true, you know, you have to, you have to deal with that. So I've got a musical now that I'm, I've written for two very specific performers and I'm, I'm excited about them and working with them, but it's possible they won't want to do it. And I'll have to rethink what it is. Sometimes you are doing a workshop of a new piece and and the actors are amazing and you want them and they suddenly become a huge star and they're doing a TV series and they're not going to go to, you know, Cincinnati to do your pinky little musical. <laughs> and at the same time, what do you think makes a great director to collaborate with and what do you look for? A point of view. That's what a director has is their point of view. They have their skill set. They know how to use space. They know how to collaborate with designers. You know, they know how to interpret the story, but it is the interpretation that matters. So what you're looking for is someone who has their own point of view. Hopefully it's not so far apart from yours that your shared vision is cross-eyed. Uh, it's better if it's somewhere here to the side of you. You know, the reason you have two eyes is that it takes two perspectives to see three dimensions. If I cover one eye, I'm only seeing two dimensions. That's all I, I can read. I can't tell the depth of anything. 
It is this other point of view, which is right over here, two inches to the side, that actually provides perspective. And so I avoid directors who don't have a point of view. If they say to me, how do you want me to do your play? Unfortunately, the answer is, I don't want you to do my play then because you're not bringing something unique to you into the equation between the two of us. Uh, I like to be surprised by what the other, what, what, what the director is seeing and, and feeling is there. And then I, and then it grows, I learn more. And so how did it first come to you, the idea to write books for musicals as well as plays? Was that something you wanted to do from the beginning of being a writer or? No, no. When I was writing plays in the late 80s and the 90s, some really wonderful musical theater songwriters came to me and asked me to do projects. And I, I said, no, uh, I think I didn't, I didn't yet see that that might be something I, I would enjoy. But uh, when a friend was considering doing a musical, I wrote one play with music back in the eighties, but it wasn't so much a musical as it was a as kind of a hybrid piece of theater. It had a, it had a, just a handful of songs in it. Uh, and one of my early plays, a play called uh, a play uh, titled "Blue Window," had one song in it. Um, but in both of those instances, it was the excellence of the songs that made me want to have them in the piece. And then about twenty. Two years ago, a friend of mine was wanting to adapt a very great piece of prose that I had loved for a long time and admired. And, um, and, and, and this friend was having trouble finding a book writer uh, and had gone through two other book writers that didn't actually work out. And I said, well, I think you're so brilliant and I think this story is so brilliant that if you would like me to work with you on it, I will. And to my surprise, actually, he said, sure, let's do it. And that was the first time I had, had done it. And I realized that I did understand more about how musicals work than your the average bear. Um, because it's a it's a weird format for storytelling you know you talk for a while and then you sing and then you talk for a while and then you sing and then sometimes you dance and and it has it has rules that aren't written anywhere in a rule book but those rules are sort of in the atmosphere you have to know how to breathe that atmosphere and you have to to a certain degree have an unfailing sense of structure and storytelling but also an equally unfailing humility about your place in the cosmos of the musical because audiences are attending their prefrontal cortex is attending largely to the music and the songs 
and they're not so much aware how much the story and the logic of characters are influencing their appreciation of those songs. So you have to be very patient and humble and quiet about your work because no one wants to hear from the book writer ever. But for instance, I'm, I'm doing a new musical and I was on a Zoom with all the people involved. I was seldom, if ever, addressed. I was like the monk in the corner, like lighting the candles and, and, and sweeping up the ashes. And that's your job, is to be the, the person enabling everything, but shutting up. And when I have spoken up about the primacy or the importance of the book writer, I've been cuffed. Wow. So I've learned to not draw too much attention to all that. You know, and there is a reason they don't call them booksicles. <laughs> and when you're dealing with a show like Amelie or Paradise Square, which both have very complicated plots and lots of characters and all that, do you feel that you have to approach that differently than you would a play since you have less time to do it in terms of making it clear to the audience? And I just think it's more challenging and that part is, is what's fun and interesting. I mean, Paradise Square is something that I, I, I wasn't involved with it once it became Paradise Square. I was working on it in, in Toronto when it was a musical called Hard Times. And I thought it was about uh, one thing and then it looked like the producer and the people working on it felt it was about something else. And so I stepped aside or some would say I was uh, shoved aside, but either way, uh, my, my, uh, Part in it was in getting it to a certain point and inventing a lot of characters and inventing a lot of situations and and bringing the score to a certain place and then I was no longer the the host of that party um, and that was okay for me to to uh, to move on uh, and let others. Uh, express themselves. That was fine. Amelie was tricky because it's a beloved movie. And I loved the songwriters and the director, but I didn't love the movie. So I may not have been the best escort and it wasn't really until we had the opportunity, having done the show several times in the United States, uh, it, it then was sort of taken over by a different team in uh, not 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 a new book writer, but but different interpreters uh, in England, and those people had very different insights into how it worked and what it was about. And it was really a revelation to suddenly see, oh, oh yes, okay. So um, I loved everyone we got to work on the show with. And 
I think it is, you know what's tricky about Amelie is that it's about a person who is in hiding. That young girl was not loved properly by her parents. Both of her parents treated her like an object, which is something that often happens to women in Western cultures. And I guess Eastern cultures too. And so figuring out for herself how she wants to live is done behind a, a mask. And musicals are about people who express what they want. But Amelie is not doing that. Amelie is privately functioning in the world until she can figure out the rules. She's almost like an autistic person who doesn't have the same neurology. So she doesn't understand why other people are doing things the way they're doing them or what they want. And she has the same claim on a life full of meaning and love as anyone, but she doesn't have the toolkit. Nobody gave her the toolkit. It's like she's a writer and no one ever gave her a pen. So she had to find out what a pen was on her own and experiment with it and learn, oh, oh, I can write. Oh my goodness, look at that, I can say what I want. But she's very trepidatious. That's a tricky thing to dramatize. And a lot of people who have theories about musicals feel that they only work when the protagonist comes out right at the beginning of the show and sings loudly, I want this, give me this, I want this now, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, I'm gonna die if I don't get it. That's not who Amelie is. She's watching other people want things. So we were in a battle the whole way figure out how to dramatize the wants and the needs of someone who doesn't even know them to name them. So it isn't that it's plotted uh, thickly that makes it difficult. It's the challenge of a story about a person who doesn't know what they want. And it takes them the whole story to figure out what they want and how to maybe try to get it. It's a it's a pineapple upside down cake. The show really, in a sense, should end with the I want song. So um, in my uh, research, one thing I sort of noticed was that a lot of the musicals you've written, as you were saying, have been based on some sort of source material, whereas the plays have less been that way. And what do you like or dislike about adapting source material? Well, you know, it's very hard to point to original musicals. There are like 10 of them. <laughs> no, I mean it. Overall. An original musical is a very rare thing. And I think the reason for that is that what makes a musical work is not visible. Its architecture has to be unassailable. There's a puzzle aspect to musicals of 
how do you keep that endeavor floating in the air as if by magic it isn't magic it's all architecture the audience must never be permitted to ask wait a minute why are they trying to get that what's at stake here all of that must be so unassailably firm that they never stop because it's already it's a it's a it's a conceit that people who are talking will suddenly start singing it's pure magic and to do a magic trick you must never draw the audience's attention to how it works so when you're adapting something you know it already here's this famous book you know here's anti-mame uh -huh. which has already been adapted into a play and a movie maybe that'll make a good musical Duh. So if you find something that is compelling enough to, that has an architectural integrity to it, even if it's flawed, you can improve upon it in, in uh, adapting it into a musical. And my teacher uh, often suggested that if you find things that, do, that are flawed, that's a better reason to turn them into a musical than if they're already the best version of that thing in existence. Uh, and that was very helpful to me. Some of the, I mean, it just depends, you know, it, it depends on the project and the, the people involved and you don't always know uh, what will cohere and what won't. But sometimes you'll take something that is beloved that you know is actually slightly broken and you can address that thing in adapting it for the stage. And that has been very pleasurable for me. And then sometimes you take something that is well nigh perfect, like the novella, the light and the piazza. And that's, that's trickier and more delicate because you are going to have to change things to make it live on the stage. The requirements of the stage are different than something where you're turning the pages and you can put it down and pick it back up and go back and reread. So those are different things. And I find those challenges very exciting. And when there is an existing story that removes one of the, one of the, the greatest challenges, which is making us making up a story that has solidity, enough solidity to carry the weight of characters wanting things and then singing and then moving towards an inevitable but not obvious conclusion. So how many original musicals are there? The Music Man. Um, uh, Dear Evan Hansen, I guess would count. Dear Evan Hansen. The Music Man was years and years in the developing and Meredith Wilson had an ally in Frank Lesser. And Frank Lesser was one of the great practitioners of 
the art of making a musical. And it was Frank Lesser's acumen and devotion to that project that helped make it into something that seemed as if it just fell from the sky. That story is very carefully wrought. Dear Evan Hansen is a, is a, you know, a kind of miraculous invention. It's very delicate. And as we've seen, you know, it can be mishandled and it has been mishandled by some. But when you have a director with the skill level of Michael Greif, the delicate aspects of that story and the, you know, the things that make people stop and wonder were protected. He protected the essence of that story. Uh, those in the know recognize how much skill went into presenting that story in that form by that artist. This, the songwriters and the book writer are enormously gifted, but they were also very fortunate in having that director. And has there ever been a source material that you've thought about adapting or even started to adapt, but then realized that it wouldn't really work? as a musical or a play? I have worked on things that I thought could work uh, that did not make it, uh, but not always because I found that they couldn't. Uh, but, you know, musicals are very, they're like ocean glowing vessels. They're very expensive and unwieldy and they take a long time to be developed and you need people who believe in them all the way. Uh, so I'm writing my first original musical now and it's really interesting and fun. And because nobody is involved, it doesn't have a host. It doesn't have a, a theater or a producer protecting it. Uh, I'm free to do what I want, but I'm everything falls to me and to the songwriter. And that's very, very hard. I have in drawers, you know, I have musicals that did not, and screenplays that did not reach fruition for a variety of reasons, often business and contractual reasons. Um, and you have to let go like everything else. You just have to move on. You have to go, oh, I loved that. And it, it didn't make it. And with um, an American Paris, I'd like to know what was the experience like of essentially being in a certain way the only person in the writer's room since the obviously the songs were pre-existing. Yeah well you know I joke I say you know that the Gershwin brothers were the most agreeable colleagues I ever had <laughs> they just you know they went along with everything and I loved them everything about them. It was both you know, there was a co-author, and that was Christopher Wielden, who is a natural storyteller. And and he and I both took a look at Alan J. Lerner's movie and saw that there was a possibility to make something that used ballet and choreography and the extraordinary music of George Gershwin and some unheralded songs by George and Ira Gershwin to do something that hadn't been seen 
before. And, you know, a good 45 minutes or 40 minutes of that show is just orchestral music with dancing. And that challenge completely tickled me. Mr. Wielden is the perfect colleague. He is impeccable in every way. His standards, his ethics, his, his comportment, he's, he's a dream colleague. And uh, the producers supported what, what we were trying to do. So that was also, it was just a very, very, very fortunate situation. Not easy. And there were some disagreements about how to do it. Uh, and there were some big surprises along the way. You know, we we, permit, we premiered it in Paris, in English, and where the French audience understood everything and laughed at all the jokes. Then we got to Broadway and we did the same show and the audience was stupefied with, they didn't understand. And it took a, a very smart observer who I probably shouldn't name, but she is a brilliant writer herself. And she said, they don't know why the Germans are in Paris. They don't understand the show because they thought they were in Paris, but everyone keeps talking about Germans. And to our shock and dismay, it became true or clear that it was true that the American audience was unaware that Nazi Germany had occupied France in the Second World War. And so as soon as we stated in the first 30 seconds of the show that the Germans had occupied Paris, the same show brought the entire audience to their feet. Wow. Not dissimilar to the Jerome Robbins insight that a funny thing happened on the way to the forum needed to open with a song telling the audience that it was funny and not that it was a romantic comedy because if they thought they were watching a romantic comedy, they didn't know how to watch the show. So that was really interesting. Yeah. There's always a surprise, always, always, always. It took me forever to figure out, oh, the point of the Amelie childhood is that her parents didn't teach her how to love, that you must raise your children watching out for the, the progress of their soul and their heart and not just, no, don't do that, don't touch that. That's not the way to raise children. The most important thing you can do besides be consistent to children is to hug them and let them know that they are worthy of love. And that's the, Amelie is a fable about what happens if you don't love a child. And so um, speaking of fable, <laughs> I would love to ask about The Light in the Piazza and what it was like to collaborate with Adam Gettelon. You know, he's the dream colleague in the sense that he, it's in his bones, it's in the cell structure of his being, how musicals live. And so 
I feel that we're very fortunate to have found one another. I and mean, he, you know, he's made other work with other writers and they're very fortunate to have him. He simply comes from a lineage of musical theater creators and his music doesn't sound like anyone else's music. And it's not retrograde in the sense that so much musical theater music is, it just sounds like it was written in another century often to me. His music is alive, you know, it's, it's, there's a chromaticism to it that makes it uh, more progressive and surprising and, and as a result, more memorable. Um, I, I don't feel there are that many people writing for the musical theater who are, are taking the form forward as composers. Um, there aren't that many people in the history of American theater who wrote music that is important on its own, for its own sake. You know, there's, there's Gershwin, there's Leonard Bernstein, there's Stephen Sondheim. There's Adam Gettle. And then, you know, you have to go, where are the voices? Uh, you know, and I've been lucky to work with a few other people who seem to me to be taking the music to a place we haven't heard before. Using idioms and elements we have not heard before. You know, I would, you know, urge Frank Ocean and Kendrick Lamar and Joni Mitchell, if she would listen, <laughs> to be making musical theater because uh, the music wants to have a kind of, I did feel that the score to Dear Evan Hansen had an inarguable musical integrity. You know, that song waving through a window, once it's in your head, it, it, it never goes away, ever. It's unforgettable. There just aren't that many people doing that. I've got a new show that Adam and I are doing and you know, it, it's such a joy to never be bored by the music in your own show. I've been in a lot of long running musicals and I know what it's like to live with music that isn't of that caliber. Right. That wears out its welcome after a dozen hearings and you really just want to shoot it and put it out of its misery. And Adam will never be that person. Uh, every single note, every song costs him his life. It's, I don't know, I'm the luckiest person who ever lived <laughs> to get to work with him. I really am. And so to, um, I'd love to further ask about Lionel the Piazza. Um, what is it like to be writing for a character who is mentally disabled in that way and giving them their own unique sort of voice? But Well, it's 
less tricky than it seems because she is uh, her, she's had a brain injury. And the nature of that injury, and I spoke to neurologists and child psychologists when we were working on the piece, is that her emotional maturation was arrested at the age of 12. So the only thing that's happening in that story is that Clara is a 12-year-old. That's it. She's a 12-year-old. She will always be a 12-year-old. She will always remain a 12-year-old unless something miraculous happens. And what it's interesting is that the neurologists told me that they now know more about these kinds of brain injuries than they did when Elizabeth Spencer wrote the novella in 1957. And there are sudden remissions uh, in, in brain injury uh, patients that they can suddenly begin to mature again. So Clara could actually, and that's, that's the mother's hope. And she says it to her husband at one point, you know, what if we're wrong? What if she can grow up? And that's why it's a fairy tale. <laughs> I was moved by it because I saw it as a, a a comedy of manners between the old school Italian way of being, you know, and the awful ways they relegate women to the, you know, the domestic realm and treat them as if they're children. Uh, but I was also very struck by it being a, a metaphor for all parenting, which is that you ultimately you have to let your children go into the world as if they'll be safe, even though we know they won't be. The world is never safe. It doesn't matter whether they're 18 or 21 or 40. Once they leave your home, they will be subject to the world's vicissitudes. And really what the mother is protecting is that when the child was in her care, she failed to protect the child. She turned away. And when she turned away, the child was injured irrevocably forever. And that seemed to me to be the stuff of the great fables and fairy tales of, you know, ancient times, Ovid, or Ovid, as people are now sometimes saying. Which is it? Is it Ovid or Ovid? I think Ovid, that... That's what I was taught, but then I heard someone say Ovid the other day. <laughs> More like COVID, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's all it was. And so I would like to ask, how do you feel about film adaptations of your work? I know several of your plays have been adapted on screen. And... You know, they've, they've, been, they've varied as experiences, and I can't be objective. Um, I, I loved working on all of them. And I think that it's very hard to turn musicals into, you know, movies. There are so many that have not fared well. So I guess I've been fortunate not to have to deal with that. <laughs> um, but when I was making movies with um, Norman Renee, it was fun because we had a shared 
dialogue and understanding and aesthetic. And I had a great experience working on a movie that I wrote, uh, The Secret Lives of Dentists with, with the great Alan Rudolph. That's one of the highlights of my creative life was working with, with him. Um, and I've done some directing myself, you know, films, and that has been sometimes really rewarding and I'm really proud of what I did and then sometimes less so. Um, you know, you, you just, you have to move on. You have to say, okay, that's what we did. And in some instances, I think we made some mistakes. Uh, and they were not made willfully or stupidly or for any venal reasons. They were made because we thought that was the best choice at the time. And you, you know, it has been said by better minds that no work of art is ever finished, merely abandoned. I've watched friends work on the same musical over and over again for decades, decades. Musicals that are considered classics. They continue to refine. And I admire that. And you can't, it's harder to do that with movies. Now they remake movies that were already made, sometimes shot for shot. And I, I always feel like, well, who's that for? What was wrong with the great classic that we, we already have? How is this better? You mentioned earlier how important it is to for audiences to accept what's uncomfortable and all that, but have you ever found that you've written a play that was almost too intense for Oh, yes, all the time. Are you kidding? I do it all the time. I, in fact, the last play I did in New York, which was four years ago now, uh, a, a dear old friend came up to me and said, how do you carry these things inside you? Aren't you just, isn't it killing you? And I thought, oh, maybe it is. Maybe I ought to lighten up some. Um, Norman Rene, whom I've spoken of several times today, he believed that you had to in some way give the audience hope, that you had to shine light. You know, and I've I've wrestled with that because sometimes I think the light at the end of the tunnel is the oncoming train. And audiences don't always like that kind of ironic humor. Yeah. Um, so the answer to your question is yes. I have gone too far, I think, for many people. My early work was lighter and more whimsical and playful, and it and it gleaned terrific response. And I felt that it would be a trap to continue writing in the same vein, that the most the way to stay alive and interested and engaged and growing was to continue experimenting and looking beyond and beneath and through. And the audience has not always come with me by any measure or means. Um, and that's, I think, the price of being true to your curiosity and your sense of wonder. And often I like pieces of art that don't 
win the prizes that year. Often I like things that are at first uh, doubted or criticized. And I'm old enough to remember great works of art having been poo-pooed in the critical community and by paying audiences. You know, often really important work is, is misunderstood at first and, and that's okay. But it didn't mean it was wrong to do it or to make it. Nobody sets out to fail with a new work of art. Everyone is hoping against hope that what they're, they're putting out there will be something that people really hunger for. That's, that's what drives us, is to give people something worth having and remembering. And so to um to take us up to the present day or closer to the present day, I'd be curious to know what was the experience of the pandemic like for you as a person, as an artist? And it was very familiar. When the first news hit that these cases were happening in Wuhan, it was exactly like picking up the New York Times on July 3rd of 1981 and finding on page 18 an article about these isolated cases of gay men in New York dying. And I turned to my husband and said, this is going to be a huge and tragic an irrevocable moment in history. We're not going to be able to have theater for a long time. And because he is autistic, and because I'm an only child and a bookworm, in certain ways, the pandemic suited us perfectly. We didn't have to go outside. We didn't have to socialize. Um, and I made more work than I've ever made before. And I read all seven volumes of Proust and Boswell's Johnson. And the way we live now, and paradise lost. <laughs> Things that I was putting on for my, putting off for my extreme old age, which has not arrived yet, but it felt like it had. And we lost a lot of friends, a shocking number of friends. It's just the same exact horror that 1981, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95 brought, and 96. Just one dearly beloved friend and spouse dropping dead. Because we live in a world where people don't want to spend any money 
taking care against the inevitable arrival of another deadly virus. Where people are arguing that we should cut corners and profit, that money matters more than human beings. So I suppose nothing about it has surprised me and has nothing about it has given me any edification. It's all been what had to be contended with. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I appreciate you being so open. And I, the final uh, project I'd love to talk about is one I know you're working on now, which is a musical adaptation of Prelude to a Kiss. And what has it been like to sort of revisit that play and, and adapt it in a new light? And... Oh, it's been very surprising, Charles, because when the play was originally produced, the 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 woman in the in the love affair, Rita Boyle, seemed neurotic in that she was very fearful about the political landscape and she felt that the world itself was very dangerous. It frightened her. And people were like, oh, you know, she's just gotta lighten up. She should she should just get a healthier attitude and just Stop worrying about what you can't control. Now, when you read the same play out loud, she seems like the only person in the story who is awake to the world. Everyone else seems deluded. And she seems prescient. And it changes the story completely because her fear of how dangerous everything is, is correct. <laughs> so, you know, in 1987, when I first wrote a draft of that play, she was like a Cassandra. But now there isn't a big question about how dangerous the world is. Climate change, COVID and the American colonial wars and what Putin has set out to do in the Ukraine tells us in an unmistakable way what the Greeks knew and the Elizabethans knew, which is that human life is very precarious, very, very, very precarious. Um, it's again, it's, I've just been terribly fortunate to be working with artists on this musical, Dan Massey and Sean Hartley and David Ivers, who understand these things and are interested in bringing them alive. It's, it's a very, very different experience now. It's a, it's it, for my uh, sense of things, it's better now as a musical history has caught up. And, and, and the fact that they can sing expresses things in a way that you can't distance. Uh, you know, in a play, when people are just talking, you can turn it off. That's just talk. But when the, the music is reaching you and, and, and coming through your body through different uh, 
you know, music, music you feel at the back of your neck. If, if, if you get goosebumps, that's subverting your conscious mind. It's more like um, skydiving or making love. It's a, it's a more visceral, what Freud called primitive process. And I think musicals do tap into primitive process in a way that plays don't always do. It's not for nothing that a lot of the plays that we think of as classic American plays actually had scores written for them. Most of Tennessee Williams plays at least in the first half of his career, had a composer. Paul Bowles wrote scores and live instruments accompanied the action on stage on Broadway. To Streetcar and the Glass Menagerie and the Rose Tattoo and Sweet Bird of Youth, they all had musical scores. Let's bring that back. And then the final question I'd love to ask is, with such a great career in the theater, and what advice would you give to somebody just starting out, be it as an actor or as a playwright? Or... Well, I suppose this comes from the mistakes I've made. I would say be kind and respectful and humble and patient and be if you can, of service to other people. Because the reason we revere great artists is that they were of service to us. They showed us things. They made us feel things that we might not otherwise have seen or felt. They were of service. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been oh, like oh. it's my pleasure, and I'm wishing you all the best. Oh, thank you. you Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I'll be joined for the final episode of this special themed week by Broadway legend Kelly O'Hara. Kelly O'Hara portrays the leading role of Kristen Arneson in Days of Wine and Roses, and her many other Broadway starring roles include appearances in South Pacific, The Pajama Game, Kiss Me Kate, The King and I, Bridges of Madison County, The Light in the Piazza, Sweet Smell of Success, Dracula, Follies, Nice Work If You Can Get It, and more. You won't want to miss that conversation, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.